Hello. Welcome back to the Data Science Salon podcast. I'm your host, Hugh McCallum. In addition to my work as a consultant and writer in the AI space, I'm also a senior content advisor here at Formulated By, which is the company behind the Data Science Salon events and also this podcast. Today's episode is about the intersection of AI and the law. My guest is Shane Glenn, an attorney with deep knowledge of the tech and AI worlds. He's worked for a couple of law firms that you may have heard of and for a tech company that you most certainly have heard of. Uh, I invited Shane to the show to get an attorney's view on AI practices, how an attorney can help with an AI effort, and the how, when, and why AI teams should involve their legal counsel. We also talk about the legal and technical aspects of AI-driven automated content moderation. Now, two points of disclosure are in order. Uh, the first is that Shane is a personal friend of mine, but that's not necessarily why he is here today. Uh, second, uh, what you hear today does not constitute legal advice. Now, given that, let's get started. everyone's favorite automated voice letting us know that this call is now being recorded. So first things first, I would like to welcome today's guest, Shane Glenn. He is a personal friend of mine. Um, he is also a practicing attorney who is very knowledgeable about the state of technology and AI, and that's a big part of why I was so happy he was able to join us today. I think before we begin, given the nature of today's call, or today's episode, I should say, um, the usual disclaimers apply, which is Shane is a practicing attorney. That said, what we cover today does not constitute legal advice, and everything covered here is an opinion. I, I think as far as disclaimers go, Shane, how did I do? Am I good? Am I good? I think that's really good. Um, I think the only thing to add is for both of us that you know none of the things that we say here today uh, represents the you know kind of view of any of our past, present, or future clients or employers. And we're all just, this is all just kind of personal opinion stuff from uh, two people chatting about technology. <laughs> That's awesome. And this is precisely why we have attorneys around and, and why we love them so dearly. Um, I guess a bit of background on today's call before we, get, before we get too deep into this is part of what makes this super exciting for me is that Shane and I do talk on a semi-regular basis. One of our running jokes is that our chats, they should be podcasts, but, but with an audience of two. And for a change, you know, we have a podcast with two people and, and a much larger audience. So hopefully you, our listeners today on the Data Science Salon podcast, find this interesting and useful. I think to set the tone, uh, Shane, now I know you, but I know that our listeners may not know you as well. So it might be, might be helpful just to take a couple of minutes to talk a little bit about you and your background. I think first things first, we can talk about your path to the legal profession. How did that all happen? Sure. So it was a kind of a meandering route. So, you know, as an undergrad, I studied uh, cognitive science, which uh, is a relatively small department at UCLA. Um, it's kind of 50% computer science, 50% psychology, a little bit of linguistics and other smatterings of uh, bits and pieces of other departments um, added in. I actually, all the way back in I got somewhere around 1996, 1997, I, I took a class on what was then called, you know, neural network programming. And we sort of covered, you know, 
what was the the then hot topics in that in that field you know back pop back propagation hop field networks things like that and i can distinctly remember that at the end of that class uh the professor that we had who was excellent kind of said well this is an interesting research subject uh, and if you want to go into academia there might this might be a fruitful endeavor but if you want to go into industry, there are really no practical applications for AI and you should definitely focus on on something else. <laughs> so um, and at the time, you know, that was true. We, we didn't we didn't have, you know, deep neural networks. We didn't even have the hardware that we could run deep neural networks on. Um, and so it was kind of viewed as an interesting thing that some of the, uh, you know, more math focused psychologists uh, were interested in because they were. They were thinking about, you know, using neural networks as a way of being building, you know, computational models of of brain function in a way that was kind of vaguely biologically possible. But um, there, there wasn't really a lot of thinking going on in practical applications. So I did that, um, you know, got my got my bachelor's of science in that. Um, and I went to go work for a a uh, company that was that was you know caching web assets um they were kind of a a competitor to akamai at the time and i was i did uh i think i started out doing qa for them um and then ended up doing kind of network engineering um i think my job title was systems administrator which is i guess the today's analog would be like a site reliability engineer something like that um and so i did that was working at you know small startup in southern california that company got bought by a sort of mid-size ISP that was based in the Bay Area. And then that company got bought by a giant British telecom. And, uh, you know, working for a 50-person company is pretty fantastic. Being a, you know, minor outlying property of an enormous, you know, I don't know, 50, 75,000 uh, uh, person you know, British company is a little bit less exciting. And so I was, you know, kind of looking around for something to do. I've got some lawyers in my family. Uh, law always seemed like an interesting thing and I wanted to go to grad school for something. So, uh, you know, <clears throat> applied to law school, um, ended up at a law school up in the, in the Bay Area. And then with my background, everyone said, oh, well, like, obviously you should do patent law and, uh, and write patents. So when I was in law school, I took the patent bar, which, uh, by the way, not recommended. Um, <laughs> you tend to be tend to be fairly busy in law school and, and taking uh, the patent bars, a, a fairly intense examination. Um, so did that uh, wrote patents for a little while. Um, I didn't particularly like that. You know, my my conception of being a lawyer is either you were negotiating deals or you were, you know, in court arguing issues. Um, so I, uh, sort of used that background and got a job, um, doing patent litigation. Um, and so I did patent litigation at law firms for about five years. Um, and you know, one of the clients that my law firm had was Google. Um, and that sort of ended up into a, in a, you know, job interview and ultimately a job at Google managing, um, patent litigation. And then from there, I ended up, you know, staying at Google, but shifting the focus of my work over to this job called uh, product counseling, um, where you are pretty much responsible for all of the legal issues for a given product. Um, you know, you're not, you're not omniscient, you're not supposed to know how to solve every problem. But uh, you should know how to solve some problems. 
And you should be able to figure out who has the answer for the things that you can't solve yourself. And so that's, that's the kind of work that uh, led me to sort of touching on some, uh, some issues in data science and some issues with uh, machine learning algorithms. Yeah, it's fascinating. So it, it's, it's interesting that your career started off with, with technology that, that later became AI and machine learning. And you sort of started there and then you went through the legal route and then you're sort of back in that realm all over again. But I think it's, it, it must be very powerful in the sense that you work as an attorney in the tech sector, but you actually have a technical background as well. Have you found that's been helpful for you? Um, yeah, I've, it's been useful. Uh, I mean, my, my technical knowledge is, is, you know, getting close to being 20 years out of date these days. Um, but you know, I, I can actually look at code, um, and not, uh, not just have it be like a wall of text to me, which is, uh, can be useful and sort of, you know, understanding how, you know, PRDs get written, uh, product requirement documents and how engineering design documents get written can be really useful. Um, especially when you're talking about some of these advanced technology areas, because the precise implementation details of a system can be re can be legally relevant and so i think it's it's fairly important to have someone uh, a lawyer who who is at least you know technology adjacent um to review this stuff so that they can you know get up to speed at least on a at a conceptual basis um in a reasonable amount of time Exactly. And that sort of dovetails with where I wanted to head next. You know, one of um, one question some listeners might have at this point is, well, this is this is the data science salon podcast. What what's an attorney doing here? And, you know, well, hopefully most data scientists haven't had a chance to speak with their company's legal counsel on any matters. But let's face it, at some point, uh, depending on where a data scientist moves around in the organization, um, where they move in the hierarchy and what sort of work they're doing, they might end up talking with their company's legal team, or they might end up talking with someone else's legal team, which is another, which is another case. But let's talk about some, some cases in which a data scientist might receive a knock on their, I guess, virtual door from their company's legal team. Like, what are some cases that might happen? Sure. And, uh, you know, if, if I can make a plug for the sort of general field of, of product counseling, um, if... <laughs> If you're, you know, if you're, if your product counsel or whatever sort of equivalent you have in your company is, is doing things correctly, um, there should never be a, you know, ominous email from legal that says, Hey, can we have a meeting? Um, and there shouldn't be that knock on your door. And the reason why that shouldn't happen is because the, uh, the legal team that you're working with should already know what you're doing and, you know, they should be involved in the, you know, product features or new products that you have from the, from the, the design phase. Um, you know, one of the, the guiding principles that, you know, I've always had for, for dealing with, um, with engineering teams and with product management teams is that, you know, the earlier you have legal engagement, um, the easier it is to get stuff launched because, um, you know, Frequently, there will be issues where, you know, just a relatively minor change in the design phase can make legal clearance extremely easy. Um, whereas, you know, in, in the alternate, if you have something sort of fully baked and ready to launch, um, it usually takes, there's much more effort involved in making any sort of change at that point. And that tends to be a lot more disruptive in terms of, you know, uh, sort of 
the amount of work that might need to get done um, and, you know, potentially pushing a launch schedule or something like that. Um, so, you know, I was always a big fan of, you know, I generally had like regular check-ins with the PMs um, and the engineering leads that I worked with. And, you know, my, my sort of request of the, of my clients was always, Hey, you know, talk to me as early as possible. If you just have a, a vague idea of what you want to do, let's go have lunch, run the idea by me. Uh, you know, we can, we can talk about, you know, what you're doing, what countries you want to launch it in. And even in the United States, sort of what states within the United States you want to, la- you want to launch it in. Um, Cause there are some, some interesting um, state laws now around, you know, biometric um, information and, you know, topics like that. You know, California has got its own privacy law now. Um, and, you know, just get like a rough outline and let me and the, the other lawyers that I work with start thinking about that as soon as possible. So we can figure out, you know, are there any issues? How do we, you know, like I said, sometimes there are extremely minor changes that you can make that, that make the entire difference between a product that has a relatively clean launch and no issues and maybe something that generates a negative press cycle or something where you might have to have a geographical restriction on, uh, on, on where your product launches. So I was always a fan of, you know, early frequent engagement. Um, and that tends to make the entire process much, much smoother. No, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, I'm, while I'm not a practicing attorney as a consultant, I'm, I'm in a very similar boat in that I'd, I'd like to talk to these companies and say, please, the, the sooner you talk to me, the earlier we can have this conversation, the better. Now that said, you know, sometimes I speak with companies and their view is, well, maybe it's too early to call you in. So what would you say to a company that says, you know, we're just a, a couple of people in a garage getting this straight up going. It's too early to call in legal representation to look over what we're doing. What, what would be your response to that? Yeah, well, I think the for, you know, for very small companies that don't have an in-house uh, legal presence, I think the, the two main concerns that they generally have are cost and um, and also, you know, time delays. So, you know, I've uh, I've sort of been around in the San Francisco Bay Area uh, for a while now. And, you know, sometimes I do have people just reach out to me on an informal basis and they say, hey, you know, we're thinking about doing something vaguely in this area. Um, and I can, you know, I can quickly just kind of give them some informal advice that's just like, well, you know, you need to be mindful of this. You need to be mindful of that. Other than that, you know, it looks like what you're doing is, uh, is pretty, is pretty standard. There are other people who have done similar things and not had legal issues. Now, I I just want to stress, you know, that's not a formal legal opinion that you're okay to launch your product. Um, but, uh, you know, in, in the same way that startups tend to, um, you know, use their, their personal networks and some of their professional networks to get informal advice, um, I would say that, you know, that's, that is a tool that, uh, that people can use. Um, you know, there are also quite a number of smaller law firms um, and even solo practitioners that, you know, they really understand the time constraints and the financial constraints of startups. And they're willing to, you know, put together uh, more formal legal um, agreements um, for, for legal services for startups that, that, are, that are sort of reflective of those realities. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe they, they'll give a, a certain number of hours of, of, you know, general advice at very low cost or in exchange for equity or for free um, with the understanding that, you know, maybe down the road, 
Um, they might have, you know, when they're in a better financial position and have more people and have more resources that they might want to have a more, uh, a more robust engagement. So there's, there's usually a way to get at least a quick, like, this seems like it might be reasonable versus there's no possible way you can do this um, in the way that you want to do it. Um, and just to kind of circle back around, because I feel like I had, I had somewhat uh, uh, sidelined your kind of original question, which is, you know, why do lawyers ever talk to, to data scientists or people working in the, in the machine learning field? Um, a lot of it has to do with either your source data or the application that you're going to be applying your, your trained model to. So, um, uh, you know, I think in the, in the early days of machine learning research, there were some data sets just sort of floating around in the world. Um, you know, some of them were, you know, image uh, collections of images that had been scraped off the internet that didn't really necessarily have um, uh, either sourcing or licensing um, for those images. Um, there were some academic data sets that may have had some restrictions on use to academic non-commercial um, products. And so, you know, being able to explain where your training data came from, how it was labeled, um, you know, what sort of, you know, were there any permissions needed, needed around that? Um, if it's, if it's a, a data set that comes via an open source license, does the open source license cover the, both the sort of geographical use and the field of use um, for what you're doing? That's, that's one um, concern. Um, and that's, I think that's more of a concern uh, today when, when the, the, uh, the, uh, use cases that we see are a little bit more, uh, more complicated. So like, you know, I, I'm just going to pick the example of face recognition on the iPhone. Now I've never done any work for Apple. I have no idea how they, how they built their, uh, their training data. I have no idea how that model works, but I think it is, it is reasonably safe to assume that that was probably a fairly big effort, um, in terms of, you know, collecting a, 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 big enough uh, uh, training set for face recognition that works across, you know, the, you know, vast variety of faces that we have all around the world um, and making sure that um, all of that was collected kind of like, you know, collected and used with the appropriate licensing. That's a pretty big effort. And that's, that's not the kind of feature that you can, that you can build um, just off of, you know, just to pick an example, like the old, um, I think it was the old Stanford uh, uh, brainwash um, uh, face face data set, which was a. I think that you know, I, I don't even think that's available anymore for download. But at the time, there was this there was this data set of uh, of faces that you could get that was it was taken from like a security camera in a laundromat in San Francisco, and you know those sorts of data sets are not the kinds of things that you should be using to build commercial products today. Right. I, I think you raise a good point there. You also touch on something else in the middle, which is the intended use of these products and services they're building around AI. Right. So in other words, there's something to be said for building a facial recognition model to unlock a phone versus anything that might be used for something a lot more sensitive. Right. Well, I mean, it's an it, it is definitely an interesting example because that actually is, when you think about it, an extremely sensitive use case. Um, if that, if that, uh, biometric, and you can talk about just like biometric unlock features generally, um, just backing up 
from uh, the narrow case of face recognition. You know, any sort of uh, machine learning driven mechanism to unlock a mobile device is actually quite sensitive, uh, especially when you think about what information sits behind that gate. You know, for for a lot of users, um, once you unlock a, a phone, you've got access to all of your email. If you have a banking app, you may have that doesn't have, you know, a secondary layer of, you know, password or other kinds of protection on it. Suddenly you've got access to all of your banking records and even the ability to engage in financial transactions. Um, you know, if you have a digital insurance card, you have all of that information behind there. You have all of your photos, you have all of your text messages, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that actually is, and so that's, that's actually a good, um, kind of a good lead into how to, how to think about this in the, because, you know, you need to think about, you know, like, so what are you doing with your model? Um, that's kind of the narrow use case. And, and, you know, that can be pretty, uh, pretty interesting because say you have a, you know, you're building a generic machine learning model that will help, uh, spelling and grammar corrections. That's a fairly innocuous use case. Um, again, you need to look at how you're collecting your source data and do you have permission for that, et cetera, et cetera. But the actual application, you know, is, is fairly innocuous. Um, if you're doing something like, uh, recognizing, um, human beings, then, you know, you might want to look at, um, like, I think, for example, I believe Illinois has a, a, uh, a state law that, that addresses that point. Um, and you, and you may have to look at, okay, so, you know, how are we using this? Is it going to be in the United States? Are there any implications for things like the um, Illinois biometrics uh, law? Are there any implications for like the uh, California privacy law? You know, if you're in Europe, you always have to look at GDPR, things like that. Um, and then, uh, you know, you, you so the, again, you know, if you're just looking at what the model itself does, you need to make a determination there. And then if the model is something that, unlocks further activity like a biometric unlock on a mobile device then you need to look at sort of what are all of the baked in assumptions for those applications because you know there there are many applications sitting on your smartphone today that their security model is based around this idea of like well the phone os is controlling security for me so my application doesn't have to have a lot of security built in um uh, natively because we're relying on this built, this built in security model. So you kind of need to go through and look at, you know, what are the assumptions of the application sitting behind this gate that I've built and, uh, you know, what sort of, um, unusual or unforeseen modes is, is my piece of this, um, going to introduce and then think about, you know, some of the downstream, um, uh, downstream implications for everybody who kind of stands behind you, um, in the, in the, in the application stack. Makes sense. I mean, this is this has been interesting to hear you explain a bit more about you know the, this notion of the product law practice. So you've talked about uh, bringing in legal counsel to talk about where you're getting your source data, which is very important. We've also talked about uh, the intended use of the models you're building and the ramifications thereof. What are some other reasons why an AI team, whether they're a part of a large company or a, a new startup, what are some other reasons why an AI team would want to speak with an attorney early on, as you've mentioned? Um, generally, if a, if a team is doing something that's non-standard, um, like if you're, if you're doing something that doesn't really exist in the marketplace, um, 
it's probably worth checking in because, you know, there are a variety of reasons why a certain product or feature doesn't exist. You know, maybe maybe your team has come up with a, a extremely clever way of doing something that wasn't, you know, computationally possible, or you figured out a way to leverage an existing piece of legacy hardware um, or software um, in a new way that that unlocks some new potential. But, uh, you know, or maybe it's just, you know, it's a product, it's an entirely new product category. No one's really thought about it. No one's figured out how to bring it to market. And those are all fantastic. Um, but sometimes a feature doesn't exist in the world because it's just wildly illegal. Um, and <laughs> those, you know, those use cases are infrequent, which is great for people coming up with, uh, with, you know, innovative new products. But, um, yeah, especially if you're if you're doing something that doesn't really exist out in the world, it's always it's always worthwhile to check in with the legal with with a lawyer or a legal team and just ask like, hey, we're thinking about doing this thing. Uh, do you have any ideas why um, this doesn't exist yet? You know, do, are there any uh, are there any legal concerns about why this doesn't exist yet? You know, like I think um, one sort of relatively recent and kind of persistently fascinating uh, a piece of technology to lawyers, particularly to privacy lawyers, are um, sort of you know uh, uh, smart home devices that uh, that have audio recognition built into them. I think like you know the Amazon Alexa is kind of the paradigmatic example. Um, you know, there's there's tons of extremely interesting legal issues around those. Um, a lot of those are uh, haven't been really. Formally resolved, like, you know, either through legislation or like, you know, through the, the court process in the United States. But we've got, you know, I don't know, hundreds of millions of these devices out in people's houses. And, I, you know, I, I think that's an example of where the the, you know, technology got way out in front of the law. Um, although I, I do have some colleagues who will, who will certainly argue with very strong grounding that um, there actually is no new law required for those. And we have kind of existing existing laws on the books that can be minorly adapted to uh, to cover that use case. And I want to want to acknowledge the, the legitimacy of that position. But when you think about these these, you know, smart home connected audio devices, um, they raised a whole bunch of really fascinating issues. Um, there were certainly some lawyers who were extremely concerned about them, but they've been out for I don't know seven, eight, 10 years at this point. I don't remember when, when, when the, the original Alexa uh, device came out. And, and then there certainly are some interesting issues around, um, you know, uh, quality assurance teams having, having access to audio samples. Um, you know, there are issues around sort of uh, uh, false positives on hot word detection. And what do you do with the recording after the, um, after you have a false positive on the hot word detection? There are tons of issues around user notification and user consent for those audio snippets, those you know, post hot word audio snippets being recorded. There are tons of issues around, you know, like when and how and under what what uh, circumstances might a law enforcement agency be able to access those recordings? You know, are those covered by the Stored Communications Act? You know, do uh, would a, uh, a law enforcement organization investigating a crime need a warrant to get access to those? So there's tons of issues still. Um, but, you know, in the main, we've got 
you know, at least hundreds of millions of these devices out in the world and people tend to use them every day. Um, and there, there hasn't, there have not been to date, you know, any sort of, you know, kind of giant overwhelming legal controversy around these. So, you know, I don't know if that's a positive example or not. I, I know a lot of people have extremely strong feelings about uh, about those kinds of devices, but those are an example of something that didn't really exist before, you know, came out into the world and did achieve uh, a fairly, fairly broad acceptance in the marketplace. Yeah, absolutely. And, and something we won't get into here, but something you and I have talked about a fair amount in private conversation, there's this notion of what those connected home devices mean for, let's say, possible end arounds in the discovery process in a court case. Um, also, you know, something I've said before is that you never want to be a case law pioneer, right? You never want your fancy new idea or device to be the first one to be brought before a court and have, you know, have that be the time where judges figure out what's actually going to happen, right? And so in other words, there's something to be said for being too novel can be risky, right? Yeah, um, well, I think, you know, for the lawyers at the companies that uh, that have to deal with those issues, you know, the lawyers love it because it's, you know, uh, so much of legal work tends to be fairly dry and boring. And so the the opportunity to deal with a a you know new and unique situation is super academically interesting for the lawyers. But uh, one thing I like to tell people is that you know, unique legal issues tend to be extraordinarily expensive. And so from the perspective of a company, uh, especially a company that's got limited resources, trying to do something quickly, trying to figure out how to best allocate those resources, um, it's probably not in the best interest of a startup to, you know, dump 30% of their budget into, you know, creating some, some new novel point of law through the, through the U.S. court system. That's probably not an efficient use of capital. <laughs> No, not not at all. And I think all of this circles back to a point you raised very early in our conversation here, which is, you know, this is a big part of why you want to involve some sort of legal counsel early on. Um, one of one of the great things about involving lawyers early, and I'm a big proponent of this myself, is that it really reduces it reduces that long-term risk. But you can think of the risk of doing something either novel or potentially illegal as, as being the sort of growing weight on your company's future revenues, right? If you're doing something crazy right now and you don't get it checked by an attorney and you don't involve an attorney until maybe someone else's attorney sends you legal paperwork, that can be a huge unexpected expense that you're, I mean, let's face it, your accountants won't like, your investors will definitely not like, and it's going to be a lot of red ink on your balance sheet. Yep. Yep. And, and I think, you know, from an engineering perspective, I, I, I think the, the concept of technical debt is well understood in engineering teams. And so, um, and, and again, there's a balance there. And I think the, you know, the sort of highest performing companies and the highest performing engineering teams, they understand that, you know, speed comes with a corresponding tech debt um, burden. And now sometimes it makes sense to move extremely quickly and accumulate some tech debt. Um, that that's certainly a reasonable thing to do. Um, with the understanding that, you know, moving fast today means that there's going to be some point in the future when the team is going to have to move slowly because they're going to have to go back and refactor some code, fix some processes, clean some, clean some things up. But, you know, that can be a completely rational decision, especially for a startup to do. Like, if you know, if you're trying to beat a competitor to the market by two months, um, 
you know, it, it could make sense to rack up some tech debt now to kind of capture, capture some market share and then go back and fix it. I mean, as long as you do eventually go back and fix it. So, you know, there's, I think there's a direct analogy, like you were saying to, um, to sort of, you know, legal debt where the longer you go without kind of checking in with lawyers and, and without sort of having a good legal grounding for what you're doing, you are, whether or not you're aware of it, you're sort of accumulating legal debt that um, may not have to be paid down, um, but might have to be paid down. And if it does have to be paid down, it's, it's certainly going to be more expensive to deal with it later um, than sooner. Yeah, exactly. I mean, sort of building on your, your paying it down analogy there, it's, uh, it's like financial debt. Debt is not necessarily bad. It's just the more debt you carry, you know, the more highly leveraged you are the greater your exposure to any, any other event coming along and putting you in, in very dire straits. So yeah. I get it. And all right, cool. Well, thank you for that. So I know you wanted to talk about sort of two things today. The first one was sharing a bit more about, you know, when, why, and how an AI team would talk with legal counsel. Um, the other big topic uh, we wanted to cover today was, was something that's been on your mind a lot lately. It's, it's around this notion of, automated content moderation. And I'm sure our listeners have all seen this somewhere. Maybe you're on, you know, let's face it, pick your social network and you've you've typed something, or maybe it's not even something you've written. Maybe you're just, act, your activity looks a bit too bot-like and some automated system comes in and says, eh, I don't like what's going on here. And they're going to temporarily or perhaps permanently silence your account or something along those lines. And I know Shane, when we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, you said you've seen some cases recently where, you know, this automated content moderation um, from both a technical and legal perspective, it opens up some interesting, some interesting avenues. So, for our listeners, would you just care to shed a bit more light on, you know, a little more detail on what this is and why it's been on your mind lately? Sure. So, I think a lot of this has to do with um, sort of, you know, geopolitical and medical things that have been going on in in 2020. So, you know, there is definitely both in the United States and in Europe there is a increasing emphasis on having legal requirements for social media platforms to be able to rapidly identify and remove certain categories of content. Um, you know, I won't really get into whether or not that's a good thing. Um, I, I don't want this to turn into a, you know, four hour discussion on the Communications <laughs> Decency Act and, and amendments, you know, proposed amendments to it. But this is definitely something that is working through the political system. Um, you also see this, you know, over in, um, I think like Germany and Austria are working on, um, you know, automated take or, you know, very short time frame requirements for taking down certain categories of terrorist content, things like that. Um, so this is certainly something where there is a, uh, a category of legislation that is driving companies towards having automated mechanisms of performing content moderation. Now, on the other side, you know, we had the, the you know, COVID-19 um, uh, pandemic hit this year. And one of the, you know, that which was, you know, massively disruptive across, you know, kind of all facets of, of, of global society. Um, but just, you know, just looking at the sort of narrow aspect of, you know, how this, uh, how this impacted, um, social media platforms. One of the things that social media platforms couldn't do anymore is they couldn't have, you know, giant rooms of people making, uh, hand, um, uh, content moderation decisions. Uh, cause you know, you couldn't have that many people in the room. 
Um, you know, you, you couldn't, you know, we didn't want people traveling. We wanted people sheltering in place. So you just couldn't, couldn't have those facilities up and running. Um, and at the same time, you know, when a lot of other employees in tech companies were allowed to work from home, um, you know, I think there were some policy driven decisions that, you know, companies didn't want to have those particular people necessarily working from home do, you know, working from home on those, on those issues of content moderation, just because of the sensitivity around the content. And, you know, one of the reasons why you have everybody, you know, come to work in an office and, you know, do their work on work computers is so that when you do have people reviewing other people's, you know, maybe, maybe public, maybe restricted to a group, maybe private communications, you want to make sure that you're, you're sort of appropriately dealing with the privacy concerns of, of, of that, of that data. So, you know, I think early on in the pandemic, one thing that people saw, and I, I, you know, I don't have inside information on this, but it, it was something that people were seeing and commenting on was that it looked like um, there was an increase in the use of automated content moderation filters. Um, I think there was, you know, kind of reported upticks in innocuous messages being put behind a uh, some sort of block or, you know, account suspensions or account cancellations being triggered for for what would have otherwise been considered innocuous uh, content. So those are those are kind of the two drivers for it um, that that's kind of forcing a a, you know, companies and sort of the general public to take a closer look at, at how automated content moderation is being performed. Um, and I think you know, I don't know how new or old this is, but there are also cloud hosting providers who are actually providing, you know, social media content moderation as a service. Um, like I think uh, uh, Amazon via AWS actually has a, uh, a, you know, service that you can sign up for where you can point a feed of, of comments at it and it will give you a, you know, uh, should this be allowed on your platform? Yes or no score. Um, and, uh, and that's sort of based on a model that Amazon has built and I haven't really researched it, uh, very much, but that is, you know, uh, so not only is it our companies sort of existing large companies, you know, developing their own in-house tools for automated moderation, there are now also these third party tools that you can just kind of access and, and, and pay for. Uh, All right. That makes sense. But going back to the point you made a second ago about, um, a, a, possible and let's face it an unverified but a possible uptick in the use of automated content moderation since the wake of covid i mean isn't that kind of the point of ai is that we're using models to take care of or any other form of any other form of automation to take care of what i like to call the dull repetitive predictable tasks that people do right so on the one hand we have companies that used to do the right thing and use a decent amount of of human labor to, to double check the models work and on the one side, they're getting pressed by COVID where they can't have people working in office to, to look at these things in person. And on the other hand, like you said, some of these companies are facing legal pressure to very quickly and very quickly take down some of the content on the, that appears on their websites. So if a company is squeezed between have an overzealous model or possibly break the law, I mean, what are they supposed to do? Yeah. And, and that is the problem that many companies uh, face and probably in the future that more companies will face. And I think the thing that companies need to be cognizant of, and I certainly don't need to tell data scientists this, is that, you know, there is there is kind of a direct trade off in how you tune these models between false positives, false positives and false negatives. And in the scenario that that you raised where 
there could be significant, you know, financial penalties for allowing a, you know, quote unquote, bad comment um, to persist on your platform, that model is going to get tuned strongly in favor of avoiding false negatives, which, which sort of with the way today's models work implies that you're going to have a, a correspondingly high rate of false positives. And which means that you probably want to have some sort of a pipeline for handling those false positive reports, um, which again, probably brings you back to needing a certain amount of, of you know, human driven uh, moderation decisions, at least at the appeal level. Exactly. And sorry, I sort of, I sort of took you off road for a second, but getting back to, you know, why this has been of such deep interest to you lately. Sure. So I, uh, you know, I think that, you know, more and more of our communications are, are sort of moving online. Um, and uh, uh, again, I don't want to get into the sort of very thorny uh, uh, First Amendment issues about, you know, uh, you know, what exactly is the town square and, you know, has has Facebook become the digital equivalent of the town square? The current thinking in the United States that the answer to that is is most emphatically no. Um, but um, but the the sort of practical reality of the situation is that, you know, more and more of the communications that we have are moving online um, with. And, and I think COVID really pushed that, that a lot of, you know, uh, conferences and academic uh, get-togethers um, have really been uh, have really you know they've been moved from uh, you know a bunch of people getting together in a big lecture hall to a bunch of people you know for example sort of like hanging out on Zoom um, and so you know we have these uh, these intermediaries uh, that are kind of sitting in between. Uh, certain kinds of conversations where there used to be no intermediary or there used to be an extremely lightweight intermediary. You know, like American universities are, uh, you know, relatively well known for giving just about anybody an audience. Um, and, you know, now that you can't have a, uh, a lecture at, you know, at a university that's got a, a very permissive policy and now that you need to do this over you know, over Zoom or over Facebook Live or over YouTube or something like that, these decisions around content moderation are becoming, um, you know, much more important in how people interact. Noted, noted. And so building on that, we've talked a little bit about some of the technical concerns around automated content moderation. Um, let's talk a little bit more about the legal issues behind it. I mean, so like you said, for a lot of companies, Automated content moderation, it's a fairly new thing, which meant as with anything new, they then open themselves up to other possibly new legal issues. So let's say you have a firm that's taken on some sort of automated content moderation. What sort of new legal exposures do they take on as a result of moving from human moderated content to automated? Sure. So I, I think that, you know, you always need to start with looking at you know, what is the relationships that you have and what are the sort of rules or contracts governing those relationships? So, you know, if you're if you're a sort of standard, you know, social media ish uh, uh, software service or platform, you know, you, you, you typically have a terms of service that governs the relationship between you and your and your uh, users. And that might be backstopped by something like a acceptable use uh, uh, policy, you know, a privacy policy and other sorts of sort of, you know, uh, uh, associated guidance documents um, or, or legal agreements depending on, on, on their format. So, 
I think it's it's always worthwhile when you're changing something as fundamental as how you are moderating people's behavior is to go back and sort of look at those foundational documents that you have that set up the relationship between you and your customers and saying, you know, looking at those with an eye towards, okay, we have this new automated system, you know, how are we going, you know, how does this affect any of the uh, terms that we have in these agreements? Um, and maybe, you know, it could be a situation where you didn't have an appeals process because you had a very well-trained trust and safety team that, you know, they were all longtime employees. They did an excellent job. They all understood the nuances. They regularly got together to compare notes about how to make decisions. And they were, you know, like, you know, nearly perfect. That, that'd be great. That's the ideal. Um, but if you're moving from that to an automated system, then maybe you need to have a appeals process, you know, whereby a, uh, a decision that's made by, by your, you know, machine learning content moderation model, um, it's going to make mistakes. In, in one direction or the other. And maybe you need um, need to have a system whereby the, you know, the impacted user has a way of, you know, clicking a button and saying, hey, I, I think your automated system made, it, made a mistake and having that be reviewed. And, you know, maybe, you, you know, you probably need to have a support page that explains what that process is and how it works. Um, and you probably want to have your legal team take a look at that to make sure that it's sort of, it, it fits in with the structure of your your legal terms um, and you know the, the other policies that you have for your users, and uh, the the tone you had as you as you said that just now, you you speak as though not every company has an appeals process, and not every company has a clearly documented appeals process. I think I think that's true, and you know I don't I certainly don't want to give in to the sort of fashionable trend of you know bashing tech companies for having unclear policies, um, you know. Part of the reason why these policies are 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 unclear um, is that it's really, really difficult to sort of have a written policy that covers, you know, the entire scope of human behavior. Um, and and I, I think a lot of people give sort of short shrift to that concept. But, uh, you know, I, I would invite anyone to sort of sit down and write an acceptable use policy that covers, you know, everything that you see on Twitter in a 12 hour period. Um, and that will sort of accurately call balls and strikes between, um, you know, uh, acceptable content and unacceptable content. And, you know, a lot of the reasons why these policies are hard to write um, is similar to a lot of the reasons why it's difficult to have a machine learning algorithm that can sort of effectively determine what should be up and, and, and you know, and, and what should be come down. Like one of the things I always like to joke with engineers about is that, you know, the the stuff that they write is called code because for hundreds of years before computers existed, the stuff that I write was called code. And it's, you know, it's not <laughs> it's not the other way around. Um, and so in in the same sense that a uh, machine learning algorithm really struggles to identify, you know, satire or maybe factual news reporting on a hate crime versus someone expressing support for that hate crime or humor, or, you know, there are lots of perfectly acceptable way of, uh, of ways of commenting on or discussing, you know, quite bad events that happen in the world. And it, it's difficult to differentiate, you know, something like that between like the act itself or, you know, someone expressing support uh, for, a, for a bad act. And that's, you know, it's hard for a computer to figure that out. It's also hard to write 
a set of rules and policies that correctly addresses all of those different uh, situations. And so that that's you know part of the reason why it's so hard. I mean, so effectively what you're suggesting is that uh, AI teams should get together and, and buy their attorneys a drink or 12 uh, to help them through. Yes. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, a, a lot of it and, you know, kind of getting back to this core philosophy of, of product counseling, I think a lot of it has to do with there being kind of shared understanding and that, you know, if the PMs and the engineers really understand and believe that the lawyer's job is to actually help them do what they're trying to do, um, that that is you know, if you can have that common understanding that the lawyer isn't here just to show up and say, no, you can't do that. And to make the engineers and the PM's lives difficult. You know, if you can sort of, you know, find a lawyer or if you are a lawyer, you know, try to try to make the your clients and the teams that you support understand that, you know, your job is, if at all possible, to figure out the, you know, legal way of doing what the team wants to do. Now, sometimes you just can't. But like I said earlier, those those are fairly rare um, circumstances, and it's really just a matter of how are you doing it. Um, and and you know, for any sort of given function that an engineering team wants to wants to do, there's usually a legal way to do it if people are willing to put in the time and effort to uh, uh, to, to figure out how to do it. No. Definitely, definitely. And what you said there about product counseling, and I really liked what you said, that it's not about the attorneys just walking up and saying, no, you can't do that. And this reminds me very much of the function of the risk department in an investment bank, right? Like the risk department's entire job is not to say, don't place that trade because otherwise the bank wouldn't make any money. The whole point of the risk department is to say, okay, you want to place trades in this sector, these instruments, whatever, whatever, that's fine. We need to limit you know, your allocation of the bank's money to X small percent to make sure that heaven forbid things go awry, that we don't lose our shirts. It's the same thing here, which is we're not here to say no, we're just here to say, hey, here's how to go about that without, you know, burning the house down. Right? Yeah, I, I think that I think the analogy between lawyers and sort of a, a uh, investment bank risk department is, is, I think, pretty, pretty accurate. And, you know, I think also lawyers should really not say no without providing an explanation. So, you know, rather than saying no, they should say something like, you know, if you do that, here are the risks and here are the costs. Um, now, again, there, there are some times where you should just, you know, actually say no. Um, if you're like, look, there's, you know, overwhelming liability here. You, you, you know, probably shouldn't, la shouldn't launch that, you know, self-flying uh, helicopter without discussing it with the FAA first. Like th th those are circumstances where you probably do want to say no. But generally you can just say like, look, if you launch this thing the way you have it, your potential financial exposure is X um, and the potential harm, you know, reputational harm to the company is Y. Um, I have some ideas for some changes that that could, you know, remove, you know, 90% of that, of that financial risk, you know, is that something interesting to the company? Almost always the company would say yes. And then you start talking about, okay, here, here are the legal ideas that can lower your risk profile. Um, let's talk about the engineering feasibility of implementing those ideas. Let's talk about the engineering timeline involved of those in, involved in making those changes. How does that line up with the engineering schedule that your team has? How does that line up with the, the launch date that your marketing team has, has put together? And, you know, and then that's where you can actually start digging in 
and figuring out what are the reasonable things that you can do to make the launch, you know, be much more both uh, legally reasonable, but also kind of hit the the other milestones that the company has. Because, you know, like I've kind of been saying over and over, you know, legal is only one input to uh, business decisions. You know, sometimes it can be an extremely important input, um, but generally speaking, it's one of three or four inputs to corporate decisions. Makes makes perfect sense. Now, I do I do want to be mindful of your time. I know I know that you have a lot going on at the moment. So I have two quick questions with which we can wrap up. Um, one, it relates to something we talked about a couple of minutes ago, and you may not be able to answer this one. But we were talking about this notion of automated content moderation, and you know something you've heard me rant about a lot is this notion of you never just let the models run on their own. You always have some sort of monitoring or some way to babysit the model. And, and all of that because the model will eventually be wrong and you need to prepare yourself for it. So the question I have, uh, it, it goes back to something you said about the third party service offerings around automated content moderation. You know, Let's say a group decides this is the field they want to get into and they want to launch a startup around automated content moderation. Um, what happens when that third party automated content moderation service makes the wrong decision? Like who, who takes the hit on that if it becomes either just a pure PR issue or even a flat out legal issue? Would it that be the client of the company or would it be the service provider? So a lot of that is driven by the contractual agreements between the people who are making the model and then the people that they're selling it to. So that's, uh, you know, that should be extremely clearly defined um, in terms of the, you know, who is indemnifying whom for what risk. But you But you brought up something that I think is is much is equivalently important and something that you can't really uh, you can't really deal with uh, directly in a, in a legal agreement. And that's the sort of reputational risk and the PR hit. Um, and and that's a uh, I think that's an important thing for both the you know sort of notional startup coming up with this, you know, algorithmic content moderation as a service product and their customers um, and, you know, the way that I would, you know, it's kind of off the top of my head thinking about this, the, the, the starting point for, you know, kind of, you know, guidance that I would give to the service provider in, in that situation would be to, you know, have some, in addition to all the contractual, um, uh, uh, you know, limitations and, and laying out liability and laying out the indemnities for the liability, which is, which is very important also to really explain to the customers how the model works and you know known problem areas known uh known failure modes you know known use cases that that where the model works very well known use cases where the model does not work um very well um you know there's i think also probably from the business perspective a, a tremendous kind of you know uh, uh professional services uh opportunity there where you know the ability to um, tune these models or maybe supply an individualized model to a customer based on their exact moderation needs, you know, that's something that could be, you know, could help everybody. You know, the customer gets a, a much more higher quality of uh, content, automated content moderation decision-making. And of course the, the service provider, they get to provide higher quality service. They can probably also charge more money for something like that. And so that's something that would, that would work, but, you know, just kind of, just to reiterate, I think the, the best way 
the best non-contractual way to mitigate issues for a service like that is in customer education, making sure that the customers really understand, you know, how the model was trained, what kinds of material it was trained on, and any sort of, you know, known false positive or false negative categories of use cases is a great way to deal with it. I like that. I like that a lot. And last question, I promise. And you've, you've touched on this a little bit before, but if you had any closing thoughts around what companies or, or even individual data scientists or machine learning engineers or whomever, you know, what can these groups do to reduce their exposure to legal problems as a result of implementing various AI-driven technologies? And that, you know, that can be as broad as automated content moderation to autonomous vehicles or anything else where you're letting a machine make a decision. Like what can these companies and groups do to to stay out of trouble as much as they can, given that they want to participate in that field. Sure. So I think, you know, and again, I'm going to sound like a broken record here, you know, really understanding the source of your training data, under understanding the coverage that your training data has for the potential range of use cases for your application. You know, that's really important. Um, it's also really important to both, you know, contractually, but also in in you know documents and words that your customers will actually read and understand because you know most people don't read the standard terms um explaining you know clearly explaining to the user how your model works um what you know in what sort of circumstances can the user expect the model to work well in and in in what sort of um, applications and use cases will the model maybe not work very well in i think that's that's really the, uh, the 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 sort of core of of a, of a company using machine learning, sort of keeping itself out of both out of the headlines and also out of any sort of significant legal trouble. Um, and that, you know, uh, uh, something that I think that I know you've written about quite a bit is this idea that machine learning. Well, first of all, it tends to be sold as artificial intelligence, which it's not, um, and also that you know machine learning tends to be sold as the all singing, all dancing solution to every problem you might ever have. Um, now it's a, it's a tool, it's an extremely powerful tool that's unlocking all sorts of automated, automated use cases that we didn't think we were gonna be able to, to, to automate previously, but it can't solve all problems and it's not perfect. And sort of maybe, you know, stepping down the, le the level of marketing hype in, in uh, products and services that use machine learning also goes a long way um, to, you know, appropriately setting expectations for users and customers. Totally, totally. I like that. I think to close this out, um, sort of give the listeners a bit of background. So, like I said, Shane and I, we talk on a fairly regular basis. And, you know, believe it or not, we do spend a lot of time talking about this intersection of AI and the law. And part of why I've learned about the law over the years is between my consulting work and also having worked in the fairly regulated field of finance, I, I just had a lot of exposure to that. So, you know, that's, that's how I brought what little legal knowledge I have to these conversations. You know, what about, Shane, what about people who haven't had those same experiences I have? What can data scientists do to learn more about the law relevant to their field such that they can have more intelligent and more engaging, more productive conversations with their legal counsel? What can they do? Sure. So I think, uh, you know, have some general discussions, you know, if, if you work on a team at a company that has in-house legal counsel, you know, just go to lunch with them, T talk to them about things that you are, that you are interested in. You know, most lawyers are not all that scary. Um, and, you know, just kind of 
socializing with them, previewing concepts with them, um, they can have some great, you know, high level advice, some high level insight. Um, and, and if I can just shamelessly plug some writing that you've done, Q, I really, really enjoyed. Um, you did a, a multi-part series of essays on how I think it was high frequency trading firms use machine learning. Um, and I think that is a really good you know, set of articles for people both on the legal side and on the engineering side to read because, and again, I'm, I, I don't know a lot about this area, uh, but it seems like you know, that is one of the few areas where you have you know, billions of dollars on the line every second of every day, depending on the successful operation of these algorithms. And, you know, your series of articles kind of goes through and explains all of the many, many layers of safeguards that exist both before these models go into, go into production and also the oversight that happens on these models while they're in production and the sort of, you know, post-production review and, uh, and, and future development that goes on. And I think that's, that's you know, that, that it certainly gave me a good understanding for how to advise people using machine learning. Um, and I think it's a, it's a great use case because, you know, there's lots of potential in machine learning, but the, the sort of algorithmic trading people, they might have been doing it the longest with the highest potential downside, like instantaneous potential downside. And, you know, they have had issues like, you know, I think, I think you, you talked at least touched on a couple of issues where, you know, something went wrong and, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars disappeared. Um, uh, and, and there was a lot of learning that happened out of that. So I would, I would definitely point people to that series of articles. Oh, well, thank you very much. Shane. I mean, first of all, I had a lot of fun writing that series and it's always interesting to talk to people who have read it. Um, I think you're the first attorney with whom I've spoken, who's, who's read it, at least the only one who's read it and liked it. So that's a plus. Um, so thank you so much. And I guess for people, um, for, for the listeners after this, I'll be sure to put a link to that series in show notes. Well, Shane, like I said, I promised you an hour. You have been extremely generous with your time offering me an hour to talk about the law and its intersection with the world of data science, machine learning, and AI and all that. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, and hopefully we can have you back in the future. I'd love to. Thank you very much, Q. All right. Cheers. Bye. <laughs>